This episode was recorded as part of a conference call series on U.S.-Mexico relations. You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners and guests to this very special 1918 Society call with Ambassador James Jones. He's the chair of Manat Jones Global Strategies, a firm that provides strategic guidance to clients interested in investment and development in Mexico, Latin America, and Asia. And he served as U.S. Ambassador to Mexico during a critical time in the Clinton administration from 1993 to 1997, which you will remember was the time when NAFTA was negotiated, passed, and implemented, and also the 1994 pesos crisis. And a particular note to all friends of the World Affairs Council, Ambassador Jones was truly an outstanding chairman that I had the pleasure of working with when I was on the board at the time at the World Affairs Councils of America. And I must add that he still provides invaluable advice and assistance to the Council's leadership. Great to have you with us, sir. Jim, thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed the time I was chairman of WACA, and you and so many other really dedicated people on the board, so it's good to be back with the group. Great. Well, before we start our conversation, let me just remind all of our listeners that we've muted the call for the first portion of the conversation that the ambassador and I will have, and then after about 15 minutes or so, we really want to take your questions, and to ask a question, just press star six. And let me just encourage people, because we do have a lot of listeners, to keep your questions just as as brief as possible. Well, so during the campaign, Donald Trump certainly never wavered repeating at practically every stop two central themes, the building of the wall with Mexico paying for it and the renegotiation of that trade agreement, NAFTA. I'm going to be speaking with President Fox, so we'll, we'll hear what he has to say. But he did say just a few days ago on NBC that the relationship between our two countries is, and I quote, at the very lowest point since the war, 1846-1848, between Mexico and the United States. So to begin, Ambassador, would you agree with this very dire assessment? Well, I think it's it's unfortunate. The relationship right now at the people-to-people level is not good. At the government level in Mexico, I think they're playing the response to, to the Trump's charges very well, very measured, very mature. But at the people level, President Trump has managed to do something that no other politician has been able to do, and that is to unite all the Mexican people against us. (laughs) And so if you say that's bad relations, the left, the right, and the center in Mexico are wholly insulted by the Trump comments and charges, and they're very much united against the United States at grassroots levels. They're calling for boycotts of different U.S. companies. They're suggesting that basically some of them say they should leave NAFTA and use their great network of free trade agreements all over the world and develop markets with other countries and and forget the United States. So that's the kind of reaction that's happened in Mexico. Can you put into context for us, and we read and, and know, especially in this state, how important the relationship is between Mexico and the United States, but give us some concrete numbers of how it has grown since NAFTA and what is its state now. Well, 
as a general rule, exports are up to 30% of the GDP of the country and of the, many of the states. I think it's even more than that in Texas. Mexico is the second largest export market for U.S. goods and services, Canada being the first, China being the next. Mexico buys more U.S. products than Japan, United Kingdom, China, and Germany combined. So that's how big the market is for U.S. goods and services. In terms of the states, I think it's 23 or 24 of the 50 states. Mexico is the largest export market for those states. And so if the trade relationships, if the bilateral relationships really deteriorate, it obviously is going to have an effect on Mexico until they can get on their feet again. It's also going to have a very, very big negative effect on the U.S. economy. And what is the procedure if President Trump decided to totally withdraw from NAFTA? I mean, with Brexit, you have this two-year process. Is there a negotiation out process with NAFTA, or would it be more immediate? Well, if you have a renegotiation of NAFTA, the process, as I understand it, is the president has to formally send a letter to the U.S. Congress saying that they're going to commence renegotiation of NAFTA. And then the negotiations go on, and then Congress, for almost all of those negotiated parts, will have to approve it or disapprove it. The president does have certain prerogatives just to leave NAFTA altogether without any negotiations. And I don't believe, in fact, it's still a legal question that I don't think has been resolved, whether Congress does or does not need to support and approve leaving NAFTA. But in any event, that can be done if you just want to leave NAFTA totally. So one of the advantages or one of the arguments used the Trans-Pacific Partnership that was perhaps not articulated well enough is that it was going to enhance, improve, correct some of the potential or weaknesses with NAFTA. Since it looks like, obviously, the United States will not be a party of the TPP if it does even take place, what are some of the points that the United States might want to strengthen, and what are the areas that Mexico would want to improve on? Well, both countries have ideas on improving NAFTA. In the United States, as well as in Mexico's case, intellectual property protection is a very big item. It's hard to believe that when NAFTA was negotiated, cell phones really were, were not in existence. They had these big clunkers of like brick-like machines that were a cell phone, but nothing like we have today. iPhones weren't in existence, iPads, et cetera, et cetera. And so intellectual property and technology protection is an important part, both for the United States, because we're the world's leaders at that, but also in Mexico, where they've had tremendous advances in developing technology. So that's one area. From the United States' point of view, both the labor and the environmental side agreements should be put into the treaty itself. So we protect both the environmental and the labor provisions and perhaps strengthen those. Dispute resolution is a big one, as I understand it, in the Trump White House. Methods to improve the process, the efficiency of disputes, getting them resolved. That's one part they want to have. The other part is sort of counter to that, 
is a number of people in the White House don't want the dispute resolution applied to investor versus state and state versus state. And so it's kind of counter to what they they say they want the dispute resolutions to to be more efficient. But that's that's an issue that needs to be on the table. And uh, and there are others like that. So it's not a wholesale change, but it is to recognize advances that have been made in the last 25 years in both commerce, technology, etc., and provide protections of those things. And one of the things to me that seems hasn't been addressed enough as well is that it's an agreement of three countries, mm-hmm. and we don't really talk a lot about Canada and how any change with the U.S.-Mexican relationship would affect Canada. Do you have some thoughts on that that you might share? Well, so far, Canada and Mexico, we're all in the same boat. Canada has not had the Trump anger targeted to them yet, but I think it's coming into the whole range of issues. And uh, so I think if we approach this from the standpoint of North America, and if if you look at North America, U.S., Canada, Mexico, it is the most resource-rich region in the world, and the supply chain integration that has occurred in many things, such as automobiles and aircraft and and many other things, (coughs) makes this a very efficient integrated economy. And if we approach it from the standpoint of North America, each part of the countries have something to contribute to a very competitive economy, then I think we can work this out. One of the things that worries me right now is that the full team is not in place yet. For example, Wilbur Ross is the designated Secretary of Commerce. Wilbur Ross has a long-time private sector record of being able to maneuver through the trade issues well and succeed. Best I can tell, he has not been listened to as much as he should be, and instead you have a couple of people in the close quarters of President Trump's White House who are basically drafting the executive orders based upon campaign rhetoric. And one of the concerns I have is that if you're going to issue these orders, you ought to get the widest amount of experience to advise you on what are the consequences of these orders. We saw this on the immigration executive orders issued within the last week, that things that were, first of all, green card holders were covered, and then they were not covered, and it was a, a bad rollout, if you will. And that's part and of that the because, designees had not been consulted, right? Right, yeah. Uh, he, He's got some really good appointees, General Kelly at Homeland Security, General Mattis at Defense, Wilbur Ross at Commerce. Those are people who should be listened to, and then their departments need to have input on those kinds of things. And that's what concerns me is we're kind of Wild West shooting from the hip. You know, looking south at Mexico, it strikes me that Mexico, too, has been unsteady and really <clears throat> shooting from the hip. A new foreign minister was appointed, I guess, about two weeks ago, uh, Luis Vidigay, who had been the one that had been encouraged to resign or fired when Trump made the visit to Mexico. Practically all of the consul's generals have been changed very quickly in the United States, including the one here in Dallas, Fort Worth. So I guess the question is, is what advice would you give the Mexican government now as the best way to approach the Trump administration. The changes that you mentioned were probably some changes that should have been made some time ago. In terms of Vita Garay, if this was a reaction to Trump winning the election, nobody in Mexico 
had any kind of relationship with President Trump or any of his people. And Luis Vida Garay was the one who basically masterminded and arranged the visit of Trump to Mexico City during the campaign. And so he had established a relationship with the Trump son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and nobody else in Mexico really had those relationships. I think that's why he was brought back into government. In terms of the Consul General, they have been talking for quite some time, they in Mexico, about trying to tell the Mexico story better. But what is amazing is, as close as we are as neighbors, understanding the importance of this relationship and of Mexico to the United States is not well understood in the United States. And so one of the things they were going to do was to get the consuls around the United States to get more active in the communities, to get more active telling the Mexico story and why it's important to the United States. That was the main reason why they started changing some of the consul generals to implement that kind of strategy. They were just a little bit late in doing it. Well, and the other big issue, of course, has been the wall. In your view, is there a security problem on the U.S.-Mexico border? Because one of the things that we hear is that more Mexicans now are heading back uh, to Mexico. But I'll tell you a quick anecdote. We did a program with Levison Wood, who's well-known for walking the Nile and the Himalayas and recently walked uh, from Mexico down through Central America. And he mentioned to me last week that he was surprised how many people he saw from Africa and even mentioned Taiwan and Pakistan that were heading up towards the United States through Central America and Mexico. So I was quite struck by that. So is there, in your view, a security problem? Well, let me break it down uh, different points. First of all, Mexicans immigrating to the United States legally or illegally. We have, in the last couple of years, there's been a reverse. More Mexicans are leaving the United States to return to Mexico than are coming in. And so the Mexican migration is not the big problem right now. There is a problem with other refugees and people from all over the world, as you say, Pakistanis, Indians, Chinese, and Central Americans particularly, where they're under enormous amount of danger in their countries. They're trying to come through Mexico to the United States. What's interesting is that there are more, the Mexicans and the U.S. government has cooperated very strongly in tackling this security issue. And right now, Mexico apprehends more undocumented people entering their country headed north than we do on our border. And so it's a situation where Mexico has actually been very good about this. But it's an issue that we have to constantly constantly be aware of. But, you know, another factor that people don't recognize, the border cities along the border from Brownsville to San Diego, all along our southern border, Those cities are among the safest cities in the United States. They have less crime, less drug activity, and things like that. And so we're doing something right at the border. And the question is, does a wall improve that? I don't think a wall across our entire border does much to improve it. Certain areas of the border does need more physical barriers of one sort or another. I think we need more electronic barriers that we can respond to. I I was thinking just the other day, people don't look at history, particularly in in, in advance. I think what you're going to find in history in the United States is this wall was built and all the other things that happened from that. They're going to say, 
key win, the Americans spent 15, 20, 25 billion dollars to build a wall at the exact time when there was more out-migration than in-migration, and it didn't do anything in, in terms of changing the security apparatus. And why did they do that? <laughs> Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.